Hi, it's Peter Raschuti from Out to Lunch. I'm looking forward to inviting people to have lunch with me again soon. Till it's safe to do that, let's revisit this conversation from pre-COVID days. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. If you own a car in Louisiana, there's a good chance you're driving around with a license plate that says Sportsman's Paradise. Even aside from the obvious sexist implication, there are a number of ironies about this state-sanctioned slogan. First, despite the exemplary records of the Saints and the LSU Tigers and the national profile of the Pelicans, the sports the slogan is referring to are not football or basketball, they're hunting and fishing. Another irony is that we're so good at hunting here that at one point we killed nearly every alligator in the state. Because of that, in 1987, the state of Louisiana embarked on a rescue mission. They came up with a scheme for re-establishing the alligator population through regulating alligator ranching. Those regulations are still in place today. They stipulate that all alligators in the state have to be raised in approved ranches. When gators reach four feet in length, 10% of them have to be released into the wild. As a result of this program, the current statewide alligator population is estimated to be three million. So there's the final irony. The self-proclaimed paradise for hunting is actually the home of one of the most successful animal conservation campaigns anywhere in the world ever. The most unique of the 35 approved alligator ranches in Louisiana is in Covington. It's called Instigator Ranch. Besides raising 2,000 alligators, Instigator Ranch is the only gator ranch in the state that is open to tourists. They get about 25 to 30,000 tourists a year. John Price started the ranch that grew into Instigator with his first alligators in 1989. John, welcome out to lunch. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Maybe you've been doing the math over the last couple of minutes. If they release 10% of the alligators on 35 ranches and they've turned into 3 million wild alligators, what happens to the other 90%, which would be somewhere around 30 million alligators? Apart from the gators who entertain tourists on John's ranch, the rest of the millions of them become meat and hides. Some of those hides become belts. Crescent Belt Manufacturers has been making belts since 1926. Bob Friedrich bought the business in 1995 after he retired from a career in the military where he was a colonel in the prestigious 101st Airborne Division. Today, Bob ships alligator belts and a wide range of other belts too, including rattlesnake, bison, and ostrich all over the country from his factory in Slidell. Bob, welcome out to lunch. Glad to be here, thank you. John, let's start with the most obvious questions. One, why are you the only gator ranch in Louisiana that's thought to diversify into tourism? And two, what do you think is the overriding reason that nobody else in the gator ranching business wants to fool with tourists? 
Well, a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that alligators, believe it or not, are very sensitive animals. They're affected by uh, people visiting them, especially in a, in a, a non-scheduled situation. So what we've figured through the years is that um, we're able to time uh, the visits to the alligators, and then they expect us to come. And not only that, we're feeding the alligators. The customers, the visitors are feeding the alligators, and so they're expecting food. And that gives them a, a little positive reinforcement for, for doing something that they wouldn't naturally want to do, uh, which is generally be around people. Alligators are not aggressive, but they, they certainly would tend to go the other direction when they saw people out in the wild. They like people and they're sensitive. That is such a media breakthrough. I've never heard that said. <laughs> that is, that is hey, what's the thing I, I, I've heard but I've never quite confirmed? If you raise them in a hot temperature, they become one gender, and if cool temperature, the other gender, is that right? Well, more or less, yes. Um, if you incubate the eggs at 80, excuse me, 92 degrees, you're going to get about nearly 100% males. If you incubate those same eggs at 86 degrees, you're going to get nearly 100% females. But the ranchers have figured out that if you incubate the eggs at 89 degrees, you're not only, of course, going to get a mixture of males and females, but you're going to produce a healthier alligator that's going to grow faster. And science has proven possibly even faster throughout its whole life, not just on the ranch, until it's released. But why does nobody else have a tourist gator farm? It's, uh, everybody seems to just be sticking with raising the alligators. Is it something, something you like about it particularly, or is it just good diversification? It is good diversification. I decided years ago, back in uh, uh, the late 90s, um, that I had to either get bigger, substantially bigger, or diversify, and I chose diversification. Um, we now raise alligators just like all the other ranchers do and perform our business just like they do. We just happen to do it with an audience. Um, so uh, the others, they don't do it because it's, it's a whole other job. It's a whole other business. Um, they either didn't want to do it for that reason or possibly and most likely they didn't want to do it because they were concerned for the quality of the alligator skin when you have people surprising them all the time. And like I said earlier, we, we figured out a way to not have people surprise them. To have Speaking them of surprise, do you, do you do birthday parties and things like that? Do we you? sure do. <laughs> do they come or do you bring the gators to the party? We do both. <laughs> we can I bring alligators to your house and Play with them in your backyard oh, if you we're, like. We're doing this next. This is going to be great. <laughs> now, Bob, when you got out of the military, you were young enough to start up a second career. Over the past 25 years, you've turned Crescent Belt Manufacturers into a very successful business. When you started out, did you find that the responsibilities that came with being a colonel in the military were transferable to the belt business, or was the transition not so simple and you had to learn everything new from the ground up? Uh, some of it was transferable, but business in the business world and army business are significantly different. Um, you know, when you get in the business world, you've, you've got, okay, dollar sign. When you get in the, when, when you're in the army, you get handshake. And there's, there's, there's a significant difference in that. 
Uh, I may have been a slow learner, but you know we're doing great and work with people like John to, to make belts for him to, to, to sell. And we sell right now all over the country. Oh, so I've, I've been able to catch this together. You at your at the facility, you sell money clips and wallets and things like that. Some of them are actually produced by Bob. That's exactly right. Oh, uh, this is really working right out. Right now, a majority of our of our belts are being produced by Bob. Um, Bob, when you took over, it was an existing business. What were the first couple of things you changed? Um, first couple of things I, I, I changed were. Um, some of the belts that we were making. The, the, the company was only making alligator, lizard, shark, and calf. That's all the belts they were making. Um, and you're up to how many different? Uh, 20, so. Wow. The latest edition is Zebra. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I looked at that, and then a year after I was in business, I realized that we needed to have better equipment because every belt tip we cut, buckle in, tip in, made no difference, we did with a handheld die and a mallet. Um, that's old school. Uh, that's <laughs> old school. Um, but given that, as it was, it, Charlie's business ha had a good reputation. So I brought in uh, a, a hydraulic machine so we could punch the tip ends and uh, buckle ends together. At that point, we had to move because we could not put that machine where we were. So we moved to the St. Bernard Port for, for facility. Um, it, it made a significant difference in our, in our business and taught me a lot. You know, I can make those belts with a six-inch tip. I can make belts with a seven-inch tip. I can make belts tapered to one-inch, tapered to, 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 to three-quarter. Can you make them quicker? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah we make them a lot quicker. Um, it's It's significantly different to put the belt into the Bebo and set it up and just push buttons two can't use a hydraulic without two buttons um, and set the belt up as opposed to trying to line up a belt with a handheld die and whack it with a with an old-time mallet okay uh, by the way we still have all those dies around we still have the mallet around and occasionally we still do it because we have a request for a different type belt. Uh, I thought you were just playing for a power outage or something like that. You, yeah, yeah. You can keep, you can keep uh, going. Besides yeah. selling to John, where is your market? Are you selling to mainly to individuals or department stores? How does it work? We sell primarily to custom clothiers, men's stores, uh, buckle makers. We're working right now to see if we can expand into a major retailer. And then we're going to, uh, from that point, we're going to go more into the golf industry because we do belts of many, many colors. Um, you'd be surprised what colors you can put on these on these. And this skin. one is, uh, you called it the cognac? Yeah. yeah. I, it, it's called peanut. It's called cognac. It, you know, I, I, I decided I'd like to have an after-dinner drink, so I picked up the name cognac. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you get these uh, these companies on board, do you sell it as uh, like that? If that department store is an example, do you sell it as a white label? Does it go? Does their name go on it, or does your name stay? On it? Uh, most of the time, their name goes on it. We must have fifty different private labels that we do, um, and you know, it's it's. I would love to have Crescent Belt on the back of all the belts. Can't really do that. Uh, you know, John's is 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 private label. 
because it's his company that's selling the belt. Uh, I mean, I sell to, to, to John, so from a business standpoint, it's no different. You know? But John gets to be able to say, hey, this is my belt. It comes out of my alligator, here's my logo. There's one issue that keeps coming up when I talk to people that, you know, hunt alligators and such, is they seem to have to send them far away to be tanned. Is that, is that true? Well, there's not a lot of tanneries in the world, um, but there are some actually nearby. One of the biggest tanneries, possibly the biggest tannery in the United States, is in Louisiana. Oh. So that's not very far. No, away. whereabouts is it? Um, it? It's in Lafayette. It's known as uh, Reptile Tannery of Louisiana. Um, there's a couple of others, one in Georgia, American Tanning is in Georgia, and there's one in Florida. Those are the only three that I'm familiar with that are that are uh, good quality. There used to be a lot more of them, though, right? Is that that what I've heard? Before my time. Oh, before your time. Okay, that. Well, that um, makes that makes sense. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with John Price from Instigator Alligator Ranch and Bob Friedrich from Crescent Belt Manufacturers. We'll be right back after this very brief break. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with John Price from Instigator Alligator Ranch and Bob Friedrich from Crescent Belt Manufacturers. We're, we're talking about the conservation end of it, and I think the thing that got me researching for the show was that um, without you, 92% of uh, all alligators either don't make it uh, you know, out of the egg stage or something happens to them when they're quite little. So you're increasing those percentages pretty dramatically. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing program. Um, that's the basis for which the ranching industry began, was that not only was the population low and something needed to be done about it, but the, the, through scientific studies, the wildlife and fisheries determined that the population of alligators wasn't surviving at a young age. Basically, they were being born and eaten. In some cases, they weren't being born, just the eggs were eaten. So the end result was only uh, six to eight percent of the eggs laid in the marsh were growing to become a four-foot alligator. So the wildlife and fisheries said, well, maybe we can come up with a plan to solve this problem. And their plan was to go out in the marsh and get all the eggs, attempt to leave none of them for Mother Nature. Now, we can't do that. We're not that perfect. Um, but, but we attempt to pick up all the eggs out of the marsh bring them into our ranches, incubate them, hatch them, then raise them to an average size of four feet. And by then they can kind of take care of themselves. There's nothing going to eat a four-footer and come back for a second helping. Um, even a bear, if a bear it's takes a on a four-footer. weird conversation to have in Commander's <laughs> Palace, but this is good. If a bear takes on a four-footer, he may win. But he probably is never going to do that again. <laughs> and it is incredibly regulated, right? I mean... Um, what I've always heard is that you need a tag to take a gator, and the tag is a function of how much swamp you own. Is that roughly right? Yeah, that's a, a slightly different program. Actually, the wild alligator hunting program, like they do on swamp people, uh, you, do, you do need tags. Um, you need a lease from a private landowner, or you need to own the property. And then you get authorized by the wildlife and fisheries to take a certain number of alligators off of the property. In the ranching program, it's very similar. You need uh, a lease from a private landowner or you need to own the property. 
You um, give that lease or description of the property to the Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries. They determine how many alligator eggs should be on that property and they authorize you to take those eggs. If you find that there's a lot more eggs back in the old days, in the, in the early uh, mid-80s and 90s, we would find that there were more eggs than, out there than they authorized us to take. Well, we could only take what they authorized. But we could report that we found more. They'd resurvey the property and allow us to go back and get them next year. Um, so we're basically allowed to, to remove the eggs from the property because we're going to have an 85% survival rate to four feet. Whereas in the wild, as I mentioned, six to eight percent, it's a no-brainer. And Bob, you coming out of the military, you made this acquisition of a pretty successful company that you were going to make better. Uh, but not in too long a period of time, you had to buy some new equipment. Uh, was that kind of scary? I mean, putting out no. new expenditure? No. Well, expenditures, yes. But, but uh, one thing the military taught me is, is that you can always get better equipment. Um, I, I uh, brought in the 2nd Battalion of Bradley Fighting Vehicles. Significant difference in, in where the Army was before and, and after the Bradley. Um, so getting a new piece of equipment, to me, made sense. You know, and it, I mean, and you, not as difficult as acquiring a tank. I mean, this, is, this makes a lot of sense. No, back just before I retired, an M1 tank was $2.1 million, I believe. But... <laughs> Compared to my equipment, it was very little. And as an excellent uh, guy that runs machinery, Randall Machinery, um, he in, in uh, Texas, and he's he's easy to work with. You know, comes in and stuff. And right after the uh, clicker or the the Bebo, we then got a, a splitter to help us split the the, the uh, leather hides. So we took all the fur off of them and made the thickness that they should be. Uh, I found two Fortunas, which are a different type machine, the rotating blade, uh, in a in a closet. And I said, you know, we, we have to do better than this. Uh, when I first bought the business, the way to cut strips for alligator was to slide the machine over, put it on boxes, take boards from the box to another box where they could go into, and run the leather through it. And I went, hey, no, there's got to be something different we can do with this. Um, so we got the splitter, we got the uh, Bebo to take care of the ends of the belts. And then when we had the Fortunas, we just had to put them into, into different use. I mean, my shop right now has one Fortuna that, that, that bevels on, on a liner, one that splits it down for the, for the buckle in, two that work on alligator or lizard or anything else and trim the edges down. So we've spaced the work around as opposed to having to change equipment, to change what we're doing or a different piece of, of equipment. And then the most unique piece of equipment that I got, uh, that I purchased, was um, a, a cutter. It, it, I want you to imagine a five-foot paper cutter. Okay? And I was told when I bought it by John Katz, um, it's a good friend, <laughs> that it was brand new. Well, this thing has a huge cast base. And we're bringing a cast base in. I looked at it and it said, 1879? I said, John, this isn't new. He said, yes, it is. They don't make them anymore. <laughs> it's the newest. Yeah. Now, this is sort of the elephant in the room for both of you, Bob and John. But the uh, not too long ago, California tried to pass a law that I guess no alligator products could come into the state. Um, 
What do you think? Is this a trend or is this just kind of a one-off or? I, that's, I guess that's yet to be seen. I think it's a one-off. I think it's people that um, have not done scientific studies like the wildlife and fisheries and who have not analyzed the situation but have a gut feeling that animals should be left alone. Um, and and I, I think that's just absolutely incorrect. Um, we've proven that in the case of the American alligator, man's involvement in nature is better than man's non-involvement in nature. We've proven that by having the population, as you mentioned, you mentioned that it was low. When this industry started in roughly 86, the population of alligators was 500,000. We were returning 17% in order to get that population up. The population began to grow, and in 10 years after we started, the population had grown to 2 million. And what does into the wild mean? What would I, would I see, would I see John just carrying him over the shoulder and putting him in a bayou somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like use, the visual. I use the term wild, but it is the wetlands of Louisiana, the marshlands, swamplands. Um, we catch the alligators, we tape their mouths, make it safe to deal with the alligator because his mouth is taped shut, and we hand that alligator to the wildlife and fisheries. They check its sex, they check its length, they put a tag on each rear foot so that that alligator will have a unique number, and we have to return at least 50% females. We can return 100% females, but we have to return at least 50%. So we return these alligators to the wild in a sack, we take them in sacks, put them in our, pile them up in the boat, take them out into the marsh and let them, or wetlands, and let them go uh, from the sack into the water. You know, I'm not going to go to the next place, logically, which is how you tell the difference between a boy and a girl. Alligator, I'm just going to move right on to something else. There's uh, they, yeah. <laughs> one, one, if I can interrupt, the, the, the California program, I believe, has been pushed back three months, mostly through the work of, uh, of Louisiana and uh, Christy Plot at, at American Tanning. Um, and as John says, if, if they'll pay attention to science, as opposed to what I think on Sunday morning, we can probably get that removed. But from my standpoint, I have customers in, in California. Um, we don't know what we're gonna do. We know we have another 90 days, but beyond that, I don't know. I know of a very, very talented manufacturer out there who's planning on moving out of the state. Because he, he can't do anything. I wonder if it's like guns where people will stock up on alligator belts. Wouldn't that be the funniest thing? I, I, I hope for that. Yeah, that <laughs> All right, yeah. right, okay. All right, that'll be our first business idea here. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with John Price, owner of Instigator Alligator Ranch in Covington, and Bob Friedrich, owner of Crescent Belt Manufacturers in Slidell. John and Bob, this is the part of the show we call your brother-in-law. You've quit work for the day, and you're heading out for dinner when your phone rings, and it's your brother-in-law. He usually only calls when he needs to borrow your pressure washer, but this time it's different. This time he has a business proposition for you. John, your brother-in-law says you're sitting on the greatest idea of all time for a reality TV show. He says, think back to the huge success of Duck Dynasty. That swamp drama made the Robertson family a fortune. And you could easily do the same thing at Instigator Ranch. You could call the show 
alligator empire. You wouldn't have to do anything different. You just open up the place to a camera crew and maybe once in a while have a few fake arguments with the staff for a bit of drama. Your brother-in-law is prepared to quit his job and produce Alligator Empire for you for just a reasonable cut of the profits. What do you tell him, John? Is Gator Ranch reality TV show a, a great idea or what? Your turn, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I've been a little uh, disappointed in some of the Alligator TV shows because they play off on the uh, lack of intelligence of us locals. Swamp people is a good example. Yeah, and, and I, I feel quite the opposite. I, I feel like this is very possibly the most successful program of protection for any animal on the planet, and it's it's not a result of a bunch of idiots going out and shooting alligators. Shoot them. Um, it's it's an it's a result of of years, dozens of years of analysis by the wildlife and fisheries that, that's resulted in a plan. And that plan has been implemented. And the population of alligators has grown to 3 million. And I would argue that point because there's another 750,000 on ranches and those aren't counted in the 3 oh. million. So if for some reason that. they were all to get out, they'd be 3.75 million. And that would be a wild city. <laughs> There's a, that would be. And I, I will tell you one thing that's happened with me when this swamp people came out. I had to take time to explain to my customers that no, that was not how you did it. You know, it was strictly for television. I mean, no one, no one hunting alligator would stand off at 100 yards and try to shoot an alligator in the head. No one that I know of and I've hunted with would be in a boat and an alligator's thrashing around and he shoot. You know, you're not going to hit the alligator. The key to fishing an alligator, to me, is an instant kill. You don't want to, I mean, yes, we're going to use it, we're going to make product out of it, we're going to sell the meat, but I don't want to kill any animal, and I'm a hunter otherwise, unless I kill it like that. What I've developed over time is, is uh, pulling the alligator head up over the gunnel of the boat and put it right in the eye. Eye brain, very short distance, and out the animal's dead instantly. John, what you're describing is actually more of a show that would air on PBS or National Public Radio. <laughs> and I kind of like that. Now, Bob, your brother-in-law has a great idea, too. Millennials and the generation behind them, Gen Z, like products to come with a narrative, and they like the businesses they patronize to be socially responsible. Your brother-in-law says you could market to these kids by having them follow the lifespan of the alligator that their belt comes from. The customer would adopt an alligator from the beginning of its life when it's hatched on John's ranch. Then they can follow the gator's life online and make small financial contributions to its upkeep. Eventually, they end up getting a belt. Your brother-in-law says millennials and Gen Z will love it. And in a strictly business sense, you're getting paid for a belt before you have to deliver it. What do you tell your brother-in-law? Is this a savvy marketing plan or a really dumb idea? You know, John, I'd say it's a savvy marketing plan. <laughs> We've already got the adoption program going. You can adopt alligators at Instigator Ranch. I don't know if people are going to want to wait two years for their belt. <laughs> you know, what? one thing we do... You have to figure um, out how much weight you were going to put on between there and then. Yeah. Um, when, when we're requested to make a one-piece alligator belt, uh, and there were th 
re three really good companies that that do that. Myself, Trajan out in, in uh, Wyoming, and a company over in France or Italy. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> but we will take an alligator, and, and if you order a one-piece belt from me, the tag on that alligator's tail will be imprinted into that belt. So you get a belt, you've got the tag number, and if we really want to make it fancy, and it depends on my customer whether we do or not, we'll clip the end of the tail and send it to them. So they get a presentation of an alligator belt, one piece, uh, uh, the tag imprinted, and, and a tail. I have never seen that. No, I know. On the other hand, you're the only guy that cuts the gators, is it north-south? North-south. As opposed to across the, uh, the middle there, so. Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a reason for that. Um, when, you, when you're dealing with a full-size alligator, the fibers in the skin run north and south. So when you cut across the skin, you're shortening, you're, you're breaking those fibers, okay? Then you have to have more splices. I have actually seen a size 38, inch and a quarter alligator belt black made by another manufacturer that had five splices in it. Okay? Uh, I mean, it's, why do that? Why not work with the, with the quality of the skin? One, one challenge that happens, and uh, one of our customers went to the masters uh, to show alligators and show his sterling buckles and stuff. <laughs> because you cut the alligator lengthwise, the fibers in the alligator are stronger than the fibers in a cob. In a cow. So when you hang the belt, well, that's where the leather yeah, comes leather from. Yeah, leather to regular leather yeah. belt. When, when you hang the belt down, the skin may do this, and instead of hanging straight, it'll it's hang a with a little bit curve, of a yeah. curve. Now, you've got to be able to explain that to, to, to people. Once they understand it, it's great, but if they don't understand it. Well, I need one last thing from both of you, and that is if you're approached by a gator, uh, what are you supposed to do? You just you supposed to be... Like with a bear, just run or be still? It depends on whether you're faster than the guy next to you. <laughs> um, generally speaking, they're not going to chase you, period. So I would back up. Um, but, yeah, there's rumors that you should zigzag. Yeah, that's always, ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I'm wasting um, a lot of time zigzagging. Yeah, and not only that, but they don't see well straight ahead. They can see straight ahead, but what they typically do when they're feeling threatened is they open their mouth. Well, once they open their mouth, they can't see anything. Oh, so that that's the a, best place to be. You don't want to be flaw. over there and have them go, oh, there he is. Oh, there he is. <laughs> what's, how does it work again where they always say that what, if his mouth is closed, you could just keep it closed very easily, but once, just with two fingers. And then, but once he opens his mouth, that's where all the jaw power is? Yeah, and this, that's a little bit of a wives' tale as well. It, it is easy to keep an alligator's mouth closed. Um, however, it's not easy to keep his head still. So <laughs> when he starts to shake and you lose grip on the mouth, you better be ready to be gone. <laughs> Wait, a lot of myths have been knocked out here. This is what makes a good show, I think. The alligator is an omnipresent symbol of Louisiana. They appear everywhere from t-shirts on Bourbon Street to state-funded worldwide tourism campaigns. Even with all that universal attention, John, you've managed to carve out a unique alligator business. And Bob, you've been smart enough to go into a business making something everybody needs and to keep a local business running continuously 
for what will soon be a hundred years. It's been really great to meet both of you. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been John Price. He's the owner of Instigator Ranch and Bob Friedrich. He's the owner of Crescent Belt Manufacturers. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at LaFleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. And our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace for more business, New Orleans style, on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 